The World Beyond the Headlines lecture series is a project of the University of Chicago Center for International Studies. Tonight we are pleased to welcome Hal Weitzman, Chicago and Midwest correspondent for the Financial Times. Hal has reported from Peru, Bolivia, Ecuador, Venezuela, and Chile. He has reported and appeared um, on several um, news stations. Uh, his writing has appeared in the LA Times, Miami Herald, Australian and Jane's Foreign Report, among many others. In his new book, he examines the relationship between the boom in South America's economy with the decade-long decline in U.S. influence over South American economic policies and trade agreements. Please join me in welcoming Hal Weitzman to discuss his new book, Latin Lessons, How South America Stopped Listening to the U.S. and Started Prospering. Wow. Well, I'm, I'm really blown away by this, this turnout. This is fantastic. I didn't know so many people were interested in Latin America. <laughs> What's got into you? Um, I, I want to thank Jamie Bender, who's been fantastic in, in setting this up. Um, and all I had to do was say, would you like me to come along? And she's done everything else, so thank you very much. Um, it's wonderful to be here in the University of Chicago because the, the University of Chicago has played such a, a key role in Latin America. Um, Oh, thank you. I, um, I say in, in this book that um, the Washington Consensus, about which we'll talk more in a minute, could just as easily be called the Chicago Consensus. Because, not only because I love Chicago, but um, because it was, of course, from, from this university that economists trained by Milton Friedman went in the 1970s to Chile to advise uh, the Pinochet regime on how to liberalize their economy. And that set the, the basis for all the free market reforms that we saw in, across Latin America in the 1980s and 1990s. So, you know, this institution has played a kind of huge role in Latin America. Some would say for good, some for ill. Uh, Interestingly, the president of Ecuador, the current president, is, whose name is Rafael Correa, who's kind of the anti-Washington slash Chicago consensus, uh, was uh, educated at the University of Illinois. <laughs> so you could see the ideological debate that's been playing out in the past decade in Latin America as a struggle between the economics departments of Chicago and, and Illinois. And I think they probably both think they won. But I want to start um, tonight by asking a question, a uh, bit of a rhetorical question, but here it is. Could it be that for the first time in history, the United States needs Latin America more than Latin America needs the United States? Now, cast your minds back a decade ago, or a little over a decade ago, that question would have seemed absurd, right? I mean, the United States was the heavyweight champion of the world, the undisputed heavyweight champion of the world, right? The most powerful country economically, politically, militarily. Why would it possibly need anyone, let alone a continent known for its economic crises and its political instability um, and for having almost no global political clout at all? 
well, how times have changed and how used we have become to them changing. There's an old uh, Jewish joke set in 18th century Europe, Eastern Europe, at a time when the borders were, were, were changing very rapidly and countries were asserting their sovereignty over disputed territory. And the story goes that a woman is pegging up washing on the line in some remote shtetl and up rides a Cossack soldier. And the soldier declares, old woman, from this day forth, this land is no longer Poland. It is Imperial Russia. And he rides off. And she watches him go and she says, thank God, I couldn't stand another Polish winter. <laughs> and like that woman, we've become used to the idea of the tectonic plates of global power and influence shifting beneath our feet. We hear a sort of growing chorus using the, the refrain, America is in decline. Um, this is very personal, but I, I think America is going through something akin to a midlife crisis. Very personal because I'm going to be 40 next month. Uh, so America has a, an ever-expanding debt burden, receding global role. I've got an expanding waistline, a receding hairline. We all have our problems. But uh, America's in a kind of deep existential angst at the moment. The political institutions in this country are discredited and broken. Uh, the economy is deeply wounded. Um, the, the, the Tea Party and the, and the Occupy movement are questioning the very foundations of our society. And Americans are increasingly cautious and unsure about globalization itself. The very process that Washington for decades has been promoting around the world as a way to bring free markets and free societies. And all this has uh, provoked a kind of forlorn sense of nostalgia in the American political conversation. And you, I'm sure you all know what I mean. Think about the titles of some of the best-selling political books of the past year. Books like Republic Lost, or The Unmaking of America, or That Used to Be Us. That Used to Be Us. What a pathetically sad and plaintive title that is. That used to be us. It sort of reminds me of my wife and me sitting on the couch looking at photos of when we first started dating. You know, she turns to me and says, oh, you were quite handsome then. <laughs> that used to be us. Well, I was talking earlier about uh, this Clint Eastwood ad. Yeah, it's half time in America. Fantastic ad, fantastic slogan. Um, I think it captures something, which is that people are bored of this gloominess. And people want to know what comes next. And the gloominess is very un-American, to my mind. Americans are, are generally optimistic and persistent, determined. People want to know what comes next. How do we get out of the ruts that we're in? And there are two aspects to this, right? One is the home front. What do we do here in America to get back on track? 
And that, of course, is the ground over which this coming presidential election is being fought, already being fought. And these are big, important questions. What is the, the role of the state in the economy? What is the nature of government? And we've had the great and the good have all weighed in on those questions, and they'll continue to weigh in uh, between now and November, and probably forever after that as well. But there's a question that's been much less considered, and that is the question, what is America's global role in a multipolar world? How does America use its influence in a world where it's no longer, within a few decades, going to be top dog? And that's uh, a key question that prompted me to write this book. When the Financial Times sent me in 2004 to be their Andes correspondent, great title, wonderful title, best in journalism, uh, to go to essentially to be the correspondent covering Peru, Bolivia, and Ecuador, um, I would be, I'd be lying if I said there was great expectations about what I was going to produce in terms of news. You've all got your copies of the FT. Um, and there is actually a story about Venezuela. But when I was sent out, although I later reported from Venezuela, initially I was, I was writing about Peru and Bolivia and Ecuador, um, which are not exactly the kind of countries that, that regularly hit the front pages. I had this very memorable debrief interview with one of the senior editors at the FT. And they called me into his office and said, um, you know, you've got a great story here. You've got Chavez, you've got the oil industry. I said, I'm not actually covering Venezuela. He said, oh, well, you've, you know, you've got, uh, you've got the FARC, you've got the war on drugs. I said, actually, I'm not covering Colombia. <laughs> he said, oh, why are you covering? I said, Peru, Bolivia, Ecuador. And there was a long pause. <laughs> and then he said, well, in that case, go and get a suntan. <laughs> I know, oh, I actually got a, oh, there. It was quite sad. But actually, it turned out to be an incredibly interesting time. So six months after I got there, the government was overthrown in Ecuador. And six months after that, the government was overthrown in Bolivia. And uh, Evo Morales, uh, this radical left-wing nationalist, was uh, elected president. I'm just going to open this bottle of water. Bear with me. So Evo Morales was elected after another six months. And six months after that, he nationalized the gas industry. And six months after that, Rafael Correa, the Illinois graduate, was elected in Ecuador. And in the meantime, uh, another left-wing nationalist, Ollantu Mala, was almost elected in Peru. And for those who've been following, now has been elected in Peru. So it was an incredibly exciting time. And in fact, I did get a few front page stories out of it. Hang on. <laughs> so, so I said to myself, you know, you've got, to, you've got to write a book about this incredible experience. But it wasn't till the FT sent me here to Chicago that I, I got the kind of full picture of the book that I wanted to write because I left this uh, continent 
um, that was booming economically. And I came to the US where shortly after I arrived, we were plunged into this economic catastrophe with which we're still struggling today. And so this book isn't just about Latin America, it's also about the United States. It's about the United States and Latin America. Now for a long time, people who think and write about Latin America have argued that the United States needs to be more engaged with the region. But they always did so on the premise that Latin America sort of needed to be saved, needed to be rescued. I say in the book that uh, Latin America was kind of like Sleeping Beauty and the US is kind of like the prince. And if only the prince could be bothered to cut through the weeds, he could kiss the region back to life. And uh, I'm sure that many of you who follow Latin America know that in the eyes of lots of, or several high profile writers on Latin America, Latin America became the forgotten continent or the lost continent. Fascinating, really, because, I mean, it all depends where you're sitting, right? I mean, there's sort of an assumption there that Latin America was forgotten because it was forgotten in Washington. But it, it wasn't forgotten in Beijing. And it wasn't forgotten in Moscow. And it wasn't forgotten in Tehran. And as for being lost, you could actually argue that the United States itself was increasingly lost. An unwilling superpower, unsure of how to wield influence in a rapidly changing world. But with the, uh, with the United States in decline, and I, I want to explain that because I got into a bit of a tussle in Washington the other night about this decline. Uh, when I say decline, I don't mean that we're going to be heading down economically for the next 30 years. I certainly don't believe that. I actually do believe it's half time in America. And uh, the economic signs at the moment are looking better than they have for a while. Um, and even if this recovery turns out not to be a real recovery, I do think there will be a good recovery at some point. But even in the most optimistic scenario you could paint for the United States economically over the next 10, 20, 30 years, the emerging powers are going to grow faster. And that means that ultimately we're going to be in a world where the US makes up a smaller part of the global economy than it does now. And that's a good thing. That's not a bad thing. Uh, it's what uh, Fareed Zakaria calls the rise of the rest. And we should welcome that. So when I say the US is in decline, I don't mean that things are going to be terrible. They could be great. They will be great. But the United States' role in the world is going to change. It's going to be a declining role, a diminishing role. And to my mind, what that requires is partnerships, particularly partnerships with emerging regions, with the countries that are going to be the global powers of the future. Now, if you look at America's corporations, they've long ago cottoned on to this idea. They've been funneling money into emerging markets for decades, particularly in the past decade. And if you look at the performance of our biggest companies, 
our companies here in, in, in Illinois, like, like Boeing and, and Caterpillar, they've been depending on their profits from the emerging world to lift their bottom, bottom line because the, the profits in the developed world have been pretty bad. In fact, I, I write about Caterpillar, so that's why I mention them. Um, it's fascinating to me that Caterpillar doesn't even consider South America to be an emerging market anymore. They've been there so long. They only consider emerging markets to be China and India. For them, Brazil and Argentina already developed markets, mature markets. The United States government has been much, much slower uh, on the uptake. It has been very tardy in recognizing the opportunities that globalization presents. And I think that sort of reflects a broader um, ignorance in the United States. People have missed something. They haven't really realized that while the United States had been in decline, both absolute and relative decline, Latin America has been booming. I'm sure you all realize that, but most people have not really clocked that. So it's not just economic growth, right? I mean, clearly, if you look at the, at the data, Latin America has been growing much faster than the US. But it's not just that. It's also across a whole range of indicators, the trajectories of the two continents have been going in opposite directions. So, while unemployment in the US has been stubbornly high, joblessness has been falling in Latin America. And while poverty and inequality have been getting worse in the US since long before the recession, poverty has been plunging in Latin America. And while the United States debt, national debt, is spiraling out of control, Latin American countries have been paying off their debts. And while the middle class here feels squeezed and under attack, tens of millions of people have been entering the middle class in Latin America. And while the United States is kind of plagued by self-doubt and almost fearful of the future, Latin, American, Latin America is full of self-confidence. And for it, the future can't come fast enough. Now, don't take this as me implying that Latin Americans are richer than Americans. Of course they're not. They come from a very low base and we are at a very high base. But the gap is narrowing. And the trajectories, as I say, are heading uh, in opposite directions. So over the next few decades, what you're going to see is that countries like Brazil, Peru, are going to make up a larger share of the global economy. And uh, it's already happening. I've got a little prop here. Hang on. Thanks, Marsha. It's already happening. Okay, here's the FT from December the 7th. Lead story, Brazilian growth shudders to a halt.